Our topic today is the halachic perspective on labor unions. Labor unions, of course, are a relatively recent innovation in economics. They go back a century or so. Over the last century, they have had, obviously, a tremendous impact in labor, labor conditions, in the relative power of labor and management. Perhaps they became more necessary due to the centralization of power in businesses in the Industrial Revolution and post-Industrial Revolution era. But labor unions, obviously, and certainly in the modern sense, we have medieval guilds and so on, but the modern sense of labor unions are a relatively recent innovation, but of course they have had a tremendous, tremendous impact on, on the balance of power between labor and management, labor and employers in the contemporary economy. So much so to some extent that some people argue that uh, we, we, they may not be as necessary as they once were, that they've accomplished, uh, that, that they may have been more necessary a century ago, perhaps not as necessary today, people can disagree about that. I'm not going to get that deeply today into the the economics and the politics of unions. It's uh, obviously a uh, major topic and one that uh, requires a fair amount of historical knowledge and and economic uh, knowledge. Our focus today is going to be on the halachic approaches to unions taken by the post-scheme of the 20th century, as we said, there isn't really much discussion prior to the 20th century because there weren't really unions prior to the 20th century. So we're going to consider what the contemporary halachic authorities over the last century or so have said about unions. In order to understand their perspectives, we are first going to consider the foundational Talmudic discussion. The Talmud does not, of course, discuss a modern union, but the Talmud, in a very brief passage in Baba Basra, discusses the, a kind of a proto-union or the, the right of workers in, in an industry to regulate their profession. The Talmud only has a couple of lines on this, but the, all the postkim, all the contemporary authorities who discuss unions, they all, base their, they all base their analyses on this one little passage in the Talmud. So we will first turn our attention to what the Talmud says on the subject, and then we will then we'll discuss how the Talmudic discussion was applied and invoked by contemporary discussions of labor unions. The Talmud is in Baba Basra. The first chapter in Baba Basra is titled Hashutafin, Partners. It's one of actually two prakim in the Talmud that deal with partners. So the Talmud actually doesn't deal all that much in this chapter with ordinary partnerships, what we think of as a partnership, Rather, the Talmud deals with all kinds of situations in which people have shared interests and need to cooperate, want to cooperate on on some project, on some uh, venture of joint interest. Everything from neighbors who want to build fences on, who need to build fences on the property line between their properties, to members of a city, residents of a city who want to uh, jointly fund infrastructure projects, and so on. So in the course of this discussion, the Talmud brings a brisa. The brisa says that the residents of a city, b'nei ha'ir, residents of a city, have the right to enact certain regulations to govern economic life in the city. They have the right to regulate weights and measures, midos, sha'arim, prices. They also have the right to regulate schar poelim. They have the right to establish price controls, both with regards to goods 
and with regard to employment, they can regulate schar poelim. And they also have the right to impose punishments, fines, for those who violate their enactments. So when we think of the Talmud's rules for government, for legislation, we often think more of the, the famous principle of Dina de Malchusa Dina, that we, we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, that we accept the sovereign law as binding. But the Talmud here, in this seminal discussion, also establishes a notion of more local, local self-government, that, me- that residents of a city have the right to enact certain types of regulations to, to regulate local economic activity. So the first section of the Talmud, this Brisa, just mentions this one line, which is, of course, of great import for all discussions of local regulation. One line in a Brisa that the residents of a city have the right to do that. Then, a little bit later, the Talmud brings an episode that occurred in Talmudic times. There were butchers, there were tavchi, there were butchers who made some kind of agreement among themselves that they wanted to avoid cutthroat competition. So they divided up the different days on the calendar and they, and they assigned different days to different butchers. This day is your day, this day is your day. Therefore, people won't be driving prices into the ground by competing against each other. Each butcher would have a kind of monopoly on his own day. And this, of course, would be to the benefit of the butchers, that without, the, without uh, absolute unfettered competition, they would be able, to have more, uh, they'd be able to have more flexibility with pricing. In other words, they could charge higher prices, and in general, they had more economic leverage when they reached this arrangement. We, we might call this... Uh, an agreement in restraint of trade, but they, this was the arrangement that they reached, that they would avoid competing with each other, they would be all allocated specific days to avoid, uh, to avoid the pressure of competition, and they enacted a penalty. They said anyone who violates, who breaches this agreement and works on the wrong day, we're going to penalize him by tearing up the hide of his animal. It was kind of a fine. They, they would confiscate and destroy the hide of his animal, which would be a financial penalty for violating the rules. So someone indeed violated the rules, and they destroyed his hide, and he sued them. He said, you have no right. You're not the government. You have no authority to do this. So what right do you have to go enforcing your, enforcing your rules to take away my property? It, you have no authority to do this. They went to a dintera. They came before Rava. Rava says that indeed he is correct. This was an overreach. The, the guild... The Guild of Butchers had no right to do this. So the Gemara asks, the Gemara asks on Rava, really? Butchers have no right to make such rules and enforce such rules? But we brought a Brisa earlier that says that the residents of the city have the right to regulate local economic life. So it's a, it's, it's a, very, it's a very provocative analogy. The Brisa was talking about residents of a city, that the, the people, the, the, the people as a whole, make, make economic regulations. Here we're talking about members of one profession who make, a, who make an agreement, to reach an agreement to support their profession at the expense of the public. And who said that's the same thing? But the Gemara seems to assume it is the same thing, and this is what all the postgim take away from this Gemara, that this is a dramatic extension of the earlier Brisa, that just as the residents of the city have the right to regulate economic life and by passing rules and regulations to uh, restrict and to control economic life, members of an individual profession, such as the butchers in this, in this case, have similar rights, 
Some, some posts can understand the rights are identical, they have the full authority of the residents of the city. Some maintain that, that their rights are more limited, that they have uh, somewhat less uh, broad rights. But anyway, they have, they have substantially significant rights to regulate their, their profession. And the Gemara, the Gemara rules this way, that normally they should. Rava's position is problematic. Normally, butchers should have the right to regulate their profession by this conspiracy and restraint of, restraint of trade. The Gemara explains that the reason why Rava felt that they had no right to, the reason why Rava ruled that this particular agreement was invalid, is because Rava maintained that this right is limited by one very important condition. They only have the right to do so, to enact their own regulation, if there is no Adam Chashuv. Adam Chashuv means important person. If there, We'll define what that means presently, but this right that the, the Guild has to regulate its industry is, on its own, you, unilaterally, this is only if there is no, if we don't have the presence of an Adam Chashuv, of an, of an important person. But if there is an Adam Chashuv, if this city has an important person, then they have no right to unilaterally make these types of regulations. They have to consult the Adam Chashuv, and they have to, they have to obtain his approval. That, that, that they have to do it in participation with an Adam Chashuv, and the butchers had not done so. In Rava's case, apparently, there was an Adam Chashuv, Rava himself, perhaps. There was an Adam Chashuv in the city. Rava had not been on board with their initial agreement, and therefore, the agreement was not valid. So the, yes? Um, would this apply in a case of a guild that you're speaking of if the person who the guild is trying to punish was not a member of the guild? Because the Bryce is talking where, where two people had both agreed and, there's a, and presumably there's a binding contract. Yes, so that, that's a very important question. The question is, does this apply, do, do, the mem- do the residents of the city or do the members of a specific guild have the right to impose their will on people who didn't agree to this agreement, people who are not members of the guild, people who choose not to go- join the guild, people who the guild won't accept? These are certainly very important questions, and I will return to them later when we discuss some of the contemporary postkim. so hold that thought, and we will get back to it soon. Yes, in the meantime, we'll, we'll, we'll avoid getting into that question. We'll just discuss the Gemara, what it basically says. So, the, so the, the, the bottom line of this Gemara, this is the Halacha in Rambam and Shulchan Aruch, accepted by all the poskim, is that guilds, groups of tradespeople, of members of an industry, have the right to regulate their industry for their economic benefit and even at the expense of the, the public good to a certain extent. But this is only if there is no Adam Chashuv present. If there is an Adam Chashuv, they are obligated to consult with an Adam Chashuv. What exactly is an Adam Chashuv? So, the Rishonim, the medieval authorities, give a variety of different interpretations of what an Adam Chashuv is. There are two main aspects, two, two characteristics, two qualities a person might have, broadly speaking, to qualify as an Adam Chashuv. Some commentaries seem to assume that we're talking about a Torah scholar, someone who is you know, familiar with Torah, familiar with the Torah's you know, rules that govern economics. Others understand that Adam Chashuv, the Torah has, a lot of, uh, Torah has other ways to describe a Talmud Chacham. We can use the word Talmud Chacham, which means Torah scholar. We can say Tzurva Merabanan. Other, other authorities understand that Adam Chashuv does not necessarily mean a Talmud Chacham. It means someone who has some position of authority. 
someone who's a parnes, someone who is someone who has some some position of uh, of authority, who's been recognized, is responsible for 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 local uh, for local government, for local. Uh, again, it's hard to translate this notion of adam chashuv. Is this a mayor? Is this a board? Is this a uh, is this a commission? Is this uh, are, are these administrative officials? We'll discuss later again later what contemporary posts can have understood the adam chashuv to be. But the, the point is, some, some authorities have said it means a Torah scholar. Others have said that it's someone who has responsibility and authority, who's been appointed to be in charge of the affairs of the city. The Shulchan Aruch, our main codification of, uh, of law, codifies language of Rabbi Yosef Ibn Migash, one of the great medieval authorities, who says that it is an important person who has been appointed over the public. doesn't even use language of scholarship, although we'll see, later authorities do assume that we're talking about a Torah scholar. They say it is someone who has some kind of governmental authority, some kind of uh, position of authority over the community. So therefore, the, if there is an Adam Chashuv who meets these criteria, then a, a union, a guild, would not be allowed to establish its own rules without consultation with this Adam Chashuv. If there is no Adam Chashuv, then the, they're free to do whatever they want, because uh, that's what the Brisa says. Me- inhabitants of a city or members of a certain industry have the right to regulate their industry as they see fit. Ibn Migash, again, Ibn Migash says the reason we, we need the participation of the Adam Chashuv, if he exists, is because whatever they do may very well be to the, against the public interest. So we need, we need someone to, to balance the, 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 the good of the public, the good of the employers, the good of the consumer public against the the rights of the workers, to decide whether what they're doing is, is fair and an, appropriate way to, and, and an appropriate way to run the government. This is really a third aspect of Adam Chashuv. We mentioned, one, Torah scholarship, two, some kind of governmental position of authority and responsibility. Three, some of the contemporary authorities have said the point of an Adam Chashuv is we want a neutral party. We want some kind of arbitrator Labor certainly often has righteous demands, but labor is an interested party. Labor sees things from the perspective of labor. So even if we, even if we agree that what labor wants, what, uh, what employees want, is sometimes justified, but we can't take it for granted that whatever they want is justified. So some authorities understand the point of an Adam Chashev is to have a neutral party, to have someone, who can, someone impartial who can arbitrate between the, the conflicting interests of the employers, of the employees, maybe of the public, that's the point of the Adam Chashuv. So maybe he should be a Torah scholar, maybe he should be someone with some authority, some type of governmental official, maybe he should simply be someone neutral, someone who is not labor and not, uh, and, and not uh, management, someone who is able to, to uh, impartially arbitrate between the conflicting claims, the conflicting uh, needs of, of, labor and, of labor and management. This is pretty much the the entire Talmudic discussion. There's, uh, again, fairly robust discussion in the medieval poskim. Difficult to translate that directly into, the, into modern conditions. And beginning in the 20th century, we have a whole string of, we have a whole string of rulings by, 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 by various, various halakhic authorities, mostly in Israel, some in the U.S. as well, and uh, dealing, dealing, with, dealing with modern labor unions, again, the, the role of unions is doubtless somewhat different in Israel with its, with its roots in a more socialist uh, culture 
than the U.S., which uh, got to labor unions through a somewhat different route. Ramosha Feinstein is the, is the one great American authority who discussed the question of unions. In Israel, the questions of unions were discussed even before the state began. Uh, in, in early Israeli pre-state society, were discussed by figures like the, the great chief rabbis of Israel, Rabbi Ben-Zir Meir Chayuziel, and Rabbi Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, as well as later authorities, Roshlom Zalman Orbach, the Rabbi Eliezer Huda Waldenberg, from Chaim David Halevi, and on down to contemporary authorities. So as we mentioned earlier, the, the modern authorities who discuss unions all do so from the perspective of this brief Talmudic passage. On the one hand, the Talmud tells us that organizations of, of employees in a certain industry have the right to regulate their profession, which sounds very much like union activity. On the other hand, there is this crucial requirement that if there is an Adam Chashuv, they consult him. If there is an important person, properly defined, they need his endorsement and they cannot unilaterally make decisions. So the, the critical question we have to answer is, in modern society, is there an Adam Chashuv? Is there such a thing? And who would this Adam Chashuv be? Ramosha Feinstein has a couple of seminal, very widely cited chuvos responsa on unions. He's obviously talking about unions in the United States in uh, half a century ago. So Ramosha Feinstein, again, approaches unions directly from this Talmudic discussion. He says that the justification for unions, unions are a legitimate, a legitimate uh, means of organizing labor based directly on this Talmudic discussion. What about the requirement of Adam Chashuv, of consultation with an important person, Ramosha says, given that the halacha follows the view that the, the importance of a person in this context is not measured by his personal worth, but we, we follow the view of Ibn Migash and others that we need that it is someone who is appointed to oversee municipal affairs, he says, Ramosha says, he assumes this would be the rabbanim, he assumes this would be the rabbis in the time of the Talmud who had uh, some kind of governmental authority. He says, today the rabbis are not involved in managing the, the economic affairs of their communities. They provide religious guidance, but the Rabbanim are not involved in, in overseeing prices and labor relations and so on. Therefore, Ramosha says, in modern American cities, it is considered that there is no Adam Chashuv. We have, our situation is the one the Gemara describes as Leka Adam Chashuv. He says that the remote... Ramosha's language is, after citing the, the medieval authorities, he says, cities in our country, the United States, he says, there's no Chacham, there's no Torah scholar who is appointed uh, to oversee the local economies, he says. This is considered Leka Adam Chashuv, and the unions, therefore, are free to act on their own. And certainly, he says, in the United States, where the law recognizes unions and grants them the right to organize and, to, and so on, certainly, Ramosha says, unions have the right to Ramosha's specific question was about A, striking, walking off the job, and B, and B, he, he discusses in the next phase of his, of his response, and he discusses whether they have the right to block other workers from working when they decide to strike. But we'll discuss that a little bit later. Ramosha's first point is that labor unions are a textbook case of the, of the, of, of the Talmudic discussion, and Adam Chashev is not required because there is no Adam Chashuv. The Rabbanim today are not involved in overseeing local economies. 
Roshlomo Zalman Orbach in Eretz Yisrael, he, and he, he also approaches the modern labor unions from the perspective of this Talmudic discussion. He initially argues that they can't regulate unless they, unless they get the endorsement of the, of the Heverir, of the Adam Chashev, of some kind of municipal rabbinic leadership. But then he goes on and he proposes, tentatively he says, that the, that's only true where the local Rabbanim, the, the municipal Rabbanim, the local Talmud Chachamim involve themselves in the affairs of workers and wages. But if they don't, he says, in places where the Rabbanim don't do that, which is, I think, largely the case today, where Rabbanim, that's not their, that's not their bailiwick, they're not hired to do that, they're not given authority and responsibility for that. So Shlomo Zalman says, possibly in those places, he suggests the same point as Ramosha. He says that would be like, there's no Adam Chashuv. And once again, he, he also acknowledges the possibility that, the, that in such cases, workers and, their, and, their, and, and in their organized uh, collective have the right to regulate their industry under, the, un, un, under this discussion of the Gemara. Rebbe Yezer Malamed, a contemporary authority in Israel, has argued that this is actually the subject of dispute. He says that there are other authorities, other 20th century authorities, who seem to assume that even today, some type of Adam Chashev endorsement is required for a union to operate. One of the sources he brings is a responsum by Rebeliezer Yehuda Waldenberg, the Tzitzeliezer. Tzitzeliezer was asked, several of the Israeli discussions were, in, were, were direct responses to queries put to them by religious, by religious Zionist labor organizations. The Histadrut of the Histadrut HaPoel HaMizrachi. And they posed questions to Rabbi Ziel, to Rav Cook, to Rav Waldenberg in various, in various uh, iterations. So Rav Waldenberg has a response to Shlomo Zalman Shragai, a, a religious a political leader and uh, one of the leaders at the time of the, of the, of the Histadrut HaPoel HaMizrachi, about what are the rights of the Histadrut, of the labor unions, to strike and to uh, regulate their industries and so on. So Rav Waldenberg has a lengthy and detailed discussion of the Talmudic passage in question and the medieval commentary there too, and he goes through all these different things we've been discussing, and Rav Waldenberg says that, yes, the bottom line is that just the, 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 the clear implication of the Talmud is that just as the residents of a city have the right to regulate local economic activity, so too the members of a profession, like the members of a union, have the right to regulate their profession. However, he stipulates that we need to have an Adam Chashev. They have to do this in consultation with the local important person. Rabbi Malamed seems to understand that uh, the Rav Waldenberg believes that even today there is, some, there is the need, that there, is, there is still such a thing as an Adam Chashev, and that there is still this kind of uh, neutral authoritative body or person with whom the workers have to consult, whose endorsement they have to receive. He doesn't really explain who that would be, what that means in practice, but Rabbi Waldenberg, but Rabbi Malamin understands, or by Waldenberg, as well as other authorities, disagree with Rav Moshe and maintain that even today, this requirement that unions act only in concert, only with the approval of this Adam uh, Chashuv, this disinterested third, uh, third party authoritative uh, individual or body, that Rabbi Malamed and perhaps Rabbi Waldenberg and some others that believe that, th- that this requirement still remains a still remains a real, uh, a, a, real a, 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 a living condition that this still has to be met before a union has the right to act on its own. Even Roshlomo Zalman Orbach, we mentioned, 
Rabbi Malamed says that he also maintains that we have to ask an Adam Chashuv. We noted Rabbi Orbach uh, suggests, like Ramosha, that there is no Adam Chashuv today. But the, the, the bottom line is, as we've said, all the contemporary authorities agree that union organization is legitimate under the Talmudic passage. The disagreement, to the extent that there is one, is whether we still have to abide by this requirement of, of obtaining the endorsement of an important person, whether that still is enforced today, where uh, Ramosha says it isn't, other authorities are not quite sure, that's where there exists some debate. Now, in the early formulations in the Talmud itself and in the medieval commentaries to the Talmud, the Adam Chashuv was generally assumed to be a flesh and blood, an actual person, and as the words literally literally denote, an Adam, a, a person, a distinguished person. Today, economies are larger, things are more complicated, and various contemporary authorities have assumed that realistically, practically, you can't have a single person who's going to be making decisions. Rabbi Ben-Zion Meir Chayuziel, one of the great Israeli postkim half a century ago, so he also, he also responding to, uh, responding to uh, Zionist, religious Zionist labor organizations, he discusses again, similar to Rav Waldenberg's this entire sugya, this entire discussion, and he says, today the, the task is too great, it's too complex for an individual Adam Chashuv to fill the role that he's assigned by the Talmud. Today he says, what we need to do is, he doesn't discuss practically exactly whether he thinks this is actually met in his time, but by at least ideally with his proposal for, for, uh, for, for a labor board that would be consonant with the, the Talmudic requirement is, he says, there should be a special court, a special based in, that, that comprises, he says, both Torah scholars, and he makes the interesting, uh, the interesting addition that it should have both Torah scholars and men of science, Anshe Mada, he says, men of science, men who know something about economy. So, because they need to apply both Torah knowledge, Torah values, as well as they have to have some understanding of economics in order to uh, reach appropriate conclusions. So you should have this central, this central court dedicated to uh, promulgating labor rules, labor regulations, he says. They establish the rules. Then you should have dedicated... Dayanim, dedicated judges who adjudicate individual disputes between labor and management based on these rules that are promulgated by a special uh, labor court, labor commission to establish rules. And this type of, this type of, organ, this type of arrangement, he says, would be a, a halachalamasa, a realistic modern fulfillment of the requirement for, again, for, for, for both. We, he says we want someone who has Torah scholarship, we also want someone objective, someone who can weigh the, the needs of labor and the, the rights of labor, giving labor a fair shake, and to balance that against the rights of other segments of the economy. Therefore, he says that's the way to do it, to have some kind of uh, combination of Torah scholarship with uh, economic uh, expertise combined in some kind of neutral body, and that, is, that would be the modern fulfillment of the, of the Adam Chashuv that is contemplated by the Talmud. Similarly, in a, in a discussion by Rabbi Yehuda Zoldan, a, a leading contemporary, uh, contemporary writer and expert on the, the application of traditional, traditional halacha to mod, the modern state of Israel, modern economies, modern societies, 
He's actually, he writes in, uh, in a couple of different contexts, in the, both in the context of unions and strikes specifically, as well as in other contexts involving boycotts, other types of consumer economic activity. So he also discusses Adam Khashiv, and uh, in, in his discussion of boycotts, for example, he mentions, we discussed this in a recent Lunch and Learn, he mentions that uh, he discusses the question of a boycott. There was a great cottage cheese boycott where Israeli, Israeli consumers felt that the dairy producers were engaged in price gouging with respect to cottage cheese. They organized a boycott. Rabbi Zoldan analyzes whether such a boycott would, would be legitimate according to Alacha. It is collective activity taken to the detriment of certain other economic players, the producers in this case. So he says that he, he tries to analyze this from the perspective of the same Talmudic passage we're discussing, that residents of a city and residents of a profession, but certainly residents of a city, have the right to regulate the economic affairs of their city. Now the Talmud does say, he says, that we have to consult an Adam Chashev. The Talmud does say that if, uh, that if there exists this... Uh, if there exists such an important person, person of authority, person of uh, impartial person, we have to consult him. So Rabbi Zoldan suggests that the Israeli Consumer Protection Agency, a non-profit, government-funded watchdog organization, could qualify as Adam Chashu. Similar to Orvazil writes that, the, that we need someone, again, I don't know if the, if the CPA in Israel was compo- comprised Talmud HaChamim or not. Uh, I'm skeptical that... Uh, that they make, I, I, I don't know, I guess I should find out, but I don't know if that's part of their mandate to make sure that they have some Torah scholars, at least some in their membership. But Rabbi Zoldan apparently uh, downplays the importance of having actual Tamidichachamim. He says the point is they meet the other criteria, they have some position of authority. It's, I don't know, it's a nonprofit, it's government funded, I, I don't know the details of this organization, but he apparently considers that sufficient to be a body with authority. They're, they're neutral, they're, they're an impartial arbiter, and he therefore suggests that in the context of a boycott, they would be, that would be an organization that would serve as Nazim Chashev. Moreover, he says, even though the boycott was, in his case, was a grassroots organized boycott, and they didn't consult the, the Israeli CPA before doing it, but eventually the organization signed on to the boycott, and that would be good enough, he says, to fulfill the requirement for the approbation of an Adam Chashev. So this is an idea that we find in Rabbi Ziel, Rabbi Zoldan, that Adam Chashuv might still be something that exists today, but it would, it would be transformed from an individual Talmud Chacham appointed to a position of authority to be governmental or quasi-governmental or governmental adjacent agencies that would either legislate or adjudicate and regulate economic life. And ideally, Rabbi Ziel says they, they should be comprised, they should comprise as well as uh, experts, economic experts, but having both is also good, having both is good, and therefore they should, that, that, that would fulfill the requirement of Adam Chashuv as, uh, as established in the Talmud. Now returning to the question brought up earlier about how, assuming, that, assuming that a union has the right to regulate its industry, assuming that the union doesn't need an Adam Chashuv, satisfies the the requirement to gain the approval of an Adam Chashuv. So what does that mean with regard to those who don't agree to the union's rules? Either members of the union who don't agree to a specific rule, who are outvoted, people who are not members of the union. So, what, so how, how do we understand the rights of the union to impose its will on those who are not members of the union? 
Ramosha Feinstein discusses this in his in his uh, in his tshuva in his response. He argues that first of all, when the Talmud says that members of a profession, members of a city, members of a profession have the right to regulate their city, their profession, how many members do you need? The Talmud is not clear. Some poskim, some authorities use the language all, all the members of the city together, or all the members of the profession. Ramosha argues that that is not required, as in many areas of halacha, we follow the principle of majority rule. A simple majority is sufficient. Ramosha therefore argues that as long as most of the workers are in favor of the, the organization, are in favor, of, in favor of the decisions that are taken, he says, then uh, he says, then they are, then that is valid. As long as they have the, as long as most of the workers in a given region, in a given market, are members of the union and, make, and, and, and reach these agreements, then that is again valid under the Talmudic framework. What about the right of the union to impose its will on non-union members? Some, some people choose not to join the union. So in American history, this is a long and tortured subject. We have the clothes shop, and the pre-entry clothes shop, and the post-entry clothes shop, and the union shop, and the agency shop, and the open shop, and right-to-work laws. This is one of the most contentious, has been one of the most contentious aspects of union law over the decades. In our time, one of the great fights is right-to-work, so-called right-to-work. Many states enact right-to-work laws that say that, that the union cannot require non-union members to contribute even agency fees that are allowed by law. Unions cannot require non-union members to contribute in any way to the union as, as a condition of employment. Unions can't require anything. What unions can do is to enter into contracts with employers to say, you can't hire anyone unless he meets the criteria we establish, which might include joining the union or contributing to the union. The clothes shop saying you can't hire anyone unless he's from the union or you can't hire anyone unless he joins the union. Those types of things are generally, my understanding is, generally illegal these days. The agency shop where the, where the union says you can't hire anyone unless they pay us agency fees, unless they contribute toward, toward the union, at least toward the union's expenses in representing, in collective bargaining, representing in certain ways non-union members. That is the subject of great controversy. Right-to-work laws passed in a couple of dozen states say that the union has no right to uh, enter into such a contract. They, they, they argue, based on principles of freedom of association and freedom of contract and so on, that the union should, that it's not fair for the union to have any right to demand that non-union members pay them anything if they don't want to. Opponents of these rules argue that this allows for freeloading because the unions are required by law to represent all the workers. If they become the exclusive union, they're required to represent all workers in a union. So it's hardly fair for the union to have the legal responsibility to, to represent all the workers, and yet the workers have no obligation to contribute toward the cost of the union in doing so. So this is a heated and contentious battle in, uh, in modern United States. But Ramosha discusses versions of these questions. So what happens, he says, if the union calls for a strike and the union, union labor walks off the job? Other non-union workers would like to take their jobs and act as strike breakers or scabs or all the other colorful, sca- colorful slang that we use to describe strike breakers. So does the union have the right to demand that non-union labor res- respect its strike? respect its picket lines. So Ramosha argues, Ramosha actually goes back and forth on this question. He says, on the one hand, he says, he says, it is true, he says, in principle, that once union membership is the majority of the labor force, 
they really have the right to, they really, in principle, may very well have the right to regulate the entire labor market in, the, in, in whatever area they represent. If most of the steel workers or patent examiners or uh, longshoremen decide to, to unionize, and they, they would, in principle, or Moshe says, have the right to regulate their entire industry, even those who choose not to join the union. However, Ramosha then, then uh, walks, 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 walks that back and he says that, he says that insofar as the union, insofar he says as the, as insofar as the union accepts and understands that those who choose not to join the union aren't members of the union and aren't part of the union, even if they have to, today they do have to respect, they do have to represent them in collective bargaining, but Ramosha understands that the, the way the unions are designed, at least in his time, this, this was written in El Tufshin Yudalad, which is 1954. So at least in 1954, Ramosha understands that he, he inclines to the view that the union does not represent, does not have, a, does not, its authority does not extend to non-union labor. It's Mistaveri Yasser, he says, it is more, more plausible, more reasonable, he says, that since, the, since, 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 they don't, since they don't extend their union membership to those who, are, who choose not to be members of the union, therefore, he says, they also cannot exert any authority over them. Nevertheless, Ramosha concludes that they still have the right to ask them to demand that they respect the strike on other grounds, not because the union has the right to regulate non-union labor, but because there are certain halakhic rules that regulate improper competition, Taking away someone else's job in certain contexts is limited, is restricted by halacha. Forcing someone out of his job by displacing him, in, in some cases we allow free competition, but in certain narrow circumstances to, uh, to displace somebody from a job he holds is a problem. Therefore, Moshe argues for a, for a non-union laborer to take advantage of a strike and to take away someone's job, Ramosha ultimately argues is problematic, but that's due to the general general rules of competition in halacha rather than a, a right that the union has to pass any rules to impose its will on non-union labor. Other poskim discuss this as well. There is a comment in the Chazonish, one of the preeminent Haredi authorities in uh, mid-last century. Chazonish is not really discussing unions or organized labor. The Chazonish is discussing just... Uh, you know, bare knuckles economic fighting that he's, he's, he's discussing uh, quarrels between labor and management where labor decides to walk off the job to try to pressure the employer to give in to their demands. So the, the Chazanish says that even if, they, even if they have the right to walk, to walk off their job, he says they certainly have no right to, to they, 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 they can pressure their employer by saying we're not going to work, but they certainly can't force the employer to do what they want. And they certainly can't impose their will on other employees who choose to work. Certainly, he says, that is avil, he says, that is injustice. For them to prevent their employer from hiring other workers is something they have no right to do. And if Bastin has the authority to do so, Bastin, it is Bastin's responsibility to stop such lawlessness, he says. Workers have no right to stop other workers from taking a job that they, cho- that they chose to walk away from. The Chazanish is sometimes held up as being in opposition to Ramosha, but it's not really directly in opposition because the Chazanish is not really discussing organized labor. The Chazanish is not discussing our whole Talmudic framework of the right of labor to organize and then to be recognized as a quasi-governmental body to regulate its industry. The Chazanish is talking about individual workers who walk off the job and then decide to put pressure on their employer by preventing other employees 
scabs from taking their jobs. Chazanish is not discussing once the workers reach an organized critical mass with, of, 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 where the halacha grants them governmental authority, whether they have the right to impose that authority on other workers. But the Chazanish, at, at the very least, the Chazanish says individual workers, as, as aggravated as they might be at workers who are undermining their, uh, their economic leverage by being willing to work when they're striking, Chazanish says strongly that they have no right to demand that the other workers refrain from doing so. Rav Waldenberg, in his tshuva, discussed to the his Tadrut Tapoel HaMizrahi, in, in his uh, comprehensive discussion of unions and the power that they have, he said he concludes also that unions do have the right to strike and to regulate uh, to regulate uh, their industry, and he says that this that that once the union reaches a, a majority, they can impose they can impose their will on the workers in general, provided, he says, they have the sanction, the approval of the Adam Chashuv, the important person. However, again, Rav Waldenberg doesn't clearly articulate whether this extends to the case where the union is limited to a certain membership and doesn't, uh, and its membership uh, does not extend to other people. In what Ramosh's argument that if the union membership does not, is not universal, if, if, they don't, if, they, if they don't cover everyone in the industry, Rav Waldenberg doesn't really enter into that question whether they have the right to impose their, their uh, whether the union can impose its will on non-union labor, but at the very least, within, within the organization of labor, once, once the union reaches some kind of majority uh, position and, and decides on policy based on majority rule, the union has the right to demand this of its membership, of those who participate in this organized framework, d- despite the fact that they may not agree because he also agrees that, in principle, they do have this authority granted by the Talmud. They have the right, they have the right to regulate their industry and enforce it, provided, again, provided at least that they, provided at least that they, uh, that, that they have the Adam Chashuv, that they have the consent of the, of the important person, if such, a, if, if, such an, if such an institution exists in their, uh, in, in their, in their context. Rav Cook, Rav Cook was asked also about the Torah's view on unions by, again, by the by, uh, Israeli labor organization, by religious Zionist labor organizations, Rav Cook's view is reported to have been very positive toward unions. Now, we need to take this with a grain of salt. This apparently doesn't really exist in a, as a primary, a first-hand source of Rav Cook's writing himself. Many, uh, many Israeli Zionist uh, writers cite Rav Cook, but apparently, ultimately, the source is a record of his position by the Israeli labor organizations. They said, this is what Rav Cook told us, they are certainly uh, not a, an entirely disinterested party, so we're relying on, apparently, on their, their record of his position. Rabbi Chaim Navon points this out. But anyway, what Rav Cook is reported to have said is that the union is a very positive thing. Labor unions are very positive institutions. They fulfill Jewish values of tzedek, of righteousness, or justice, of yosher, of uprightness and fairness, tikkun olam. It says unions fill, unions fulfill all these values. He says he also says that unions do have the right to make demands even of non-union labor and even against employees. That he says even against employers. He says the union can say that if an employer will hire non-union labor and thereby undermine our economic leverage, he says non-union labor will typically will typically involve inferior terms in areas like wages and hours and so on. So he says, he says organized labor has a legitimate claim against, against uh, management or 
or labor outside the framework of organized labor. Organized labor has a legitimate uh, right to claim that your activity is undermining us and causing us economic harm. Again, this is not a formal responsum, so Rav Cook doesn't give the exact uh, halachic criteria for how to resolve such claims, but he says that uh, such a claim, if, if, a, if, a, if a labor union has a claim that, that, that labor outside uh, their organized framework is, is injuring it, he says this claim has to be decided based on das Torah, based on Torah wisdom, and that has to be applied to an understanding of the particular situation. This language echoes that of, that of Rav Uziel, that you need two things here. That first of all, you have to have, you have, to have Torah knowledge and you have to, you have to approach the, the question from a perspective of Torah. And second, you have to understand the realia. You have to understand the economics and the local, uh, the local conditions. You can talk in the abstract about concepts like oppression and fairness and rights and so on, but it, it's very hard to, uh, you can't really apply that in a meaningful way unless you understand the details of the situation before you. So Rav Cook, without giving us much in the way of concrete and practical guidance, Rav Cook says that uh, claims that, that, where, that where a labor union has a claim of, uh, of unfair, deleterious competition by labor outside the framework of organized labor, this has to be submitted to adjudication based on Das Torah applied to, uh, to an understanding of the details of the particular situation at hand. This is, this, is a representative, this is a representative survey of the literature on unions in general. On the one hand, the post-skim pretty much all agree that unions are justified in, in, in halacha, even though, as I've said in the past, halacha in some ways recognizes a, has a fairly laissez-faire attitude. The attitude is that the free competition is generally approved of. Halacha also recognizes that regulation is legitimate, regulation by government, and even, as this Talmudic discussion states, even regulation by a segment of the economy, by labor in this case, is also legitimate. The traditional sources don't really discuss the, the underlying values, being pro-labor, pro-management. Pro uh, they don't really give us guidance for how to weigh the respective claims. They just, they just give the, the basic right, the right of labor to organize to the, for, the, for the betterment of its, uh, of its economic position to improve its, uh, its economic leverage in terms, of, in terms of what they have to do. So we've seen the, the key requirement is to, is to gain the endorsement of an Adam Chashuv. As we said, there are basically three factors that go into determining what an Adam Chashuv is. There's Torah scholarship, there's some kind of uh, position of authority and responsibility for economic affairs, and then there is impartiality to have a neutral party to uh, arbitrate between labor and management. What exactly that would be today? On the one hand, many authorities assume traditionally this was this was filled by a by a position of rabbinic leadership who had authority over the temporal affairs of communities as well. We don't really have that today. Rabbinic leadership today is more limited to the religious and the ritual, so we don't really have rabbinic leadership today who would who would fulfill the the, the role of Adam Chashev. So what to do about that? So we find different perspectives among contemporary authorities. Some say, okay, we just fall into the category of no Adam Chashev, that there is no Adam Chashev, in which case the unions are free to act as they see fit. Rabbi Feinstein's position. Others have argued that at least ideally we should have somebody play the role of Adam Chashev, maybe a governmental body, maybe a uh, governmental adjacent nonprofit can serve this role, some posts can have suggested that having one person is not sufficient. 
Economics are more complicated today, so today we need, uh, we need a body, we need a basedin or a, a commission of some sort. So that can play the role of Adam Chashuv. But with or without the Adam Chashuv, Postkim generally agree that labor unions are legitimate. Some even go so far, reportedly, as to say that they're good things, that they are, that, that they, that they are a positive development, that it's, appropriate, that, that, that it's good for society to have organization among its labor to stick up for the, for the rights of labor, that that's considered a, uh, a progress and a positive development. Exactly, exactly how much they have the right to claim and how to balance their claims against the needs of other sectors of society that is something with which we have little guidance in the Torah literature about. Many poskim just use very general terms like apply das Torah and apply knowledge of Torah and be fair and impartial and be considerate and thoughtful toward all the conflicting claims. But in practice, how such guidance, uh, how, how such guidance is to be applied, how such claims are to be resolved, we have very little, very little that I'm aware, very little concrete guidance about how, in practice, the conflicting claims of labor and management and maybe the consumer public should actually practically be resolved.